Well, good morning. My name is Doug Cecil. I'm the guy that you call on Wednesday night when you don't think that you're going to make it back from Ecuador. I've known Greg for 39 years, and uh, uh, we're good buds that go back uh, many, many years. So I count it a real privilege an honor to be with you here this morning and to uh, uh, fill in. I've been on those trips where you get back and you can't figure out which time zone you're in, let alone figure out what day it is or figure out where in the world you are. And so uh, I, I'm happy to be able to help out in this, this particular way. A couple of years ago, Patty and I uh, were able to go up to uh, Colorado after Christmas to be able to spend a couple of days up in the mountains. It was absolutely glorious. We were up there with our kids. And so I was waiting to, uh, for the family to come off of the mountain, decided I was going to go into Starbucks and get a cup of coffee and just wait for them as they came back down. So I got my cup of coffee and you know how Starbucks has those little teeny bars. And this little bar looked out over the window, had this nice view of the of the mountain there. It was a, kind of a glorious morning. So there I was. I was with my coffee and with my newspaper and nice, nice view, just kind of waiting for the kids to come off the mountain. And this young guy, young kid, snowboarder, sat down next to me at the bar. Now, picture this young teenage snowboarder, kind of uh, a picture of smaller, younger, uh, Sean White with dark hair. That would be kind of who, who it was. But he was a classic, classic snowboarder, young teenager. And I had my cell phone that was sitting there on the thing. He goes, oh man, is that an iPhone? I go, yeah, yeah, it really is. What version, man? You know, so we started talking about the version of iPhone that I, that I had. Whoa, that's really cool. Do you like it? Well, yeah, you know, it's got, it's faster. It does a lot more things than my my old one was able to do. And so we started talking about iPhones and some of the capabilities of what this new one was able to do. Finally, he gets around to the point, he goes, whoa, man, you know a lot about technology. You know, my grandmother, she doesn't know nothing about technology. <laughs> Your grandmother? What? So we finally started talking, you know, and I could see that the conversation wasn't going very far, very quick. And so I asked him, I said, hey man, how's life going for you? He said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, on a scale of one to 10, how fulfilled would you say that your life is right now? He said, well, about a five. All right. What makes it a five on that scale? Well, the poor young, young guy, he was living with his grandmother. That's the reason he brought up his grandmother. He was living with his grandmother. He wasn't quite sure exactly where all of, the, all of his parents were. It was kind of a tough life for him. He lacked direction. He lacked purpose. He lacked a, a few other things. He was just kind of ambling around. And I said, let me ask you another question. If do you think that that number on that scale would change one way or another if God was a part of the equation? 
Whoa, man, that's heavy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, but you're getting really close to some of the most important, the most important question that anybody could be able to ask you. I mean, what, what, what about your eternal destiny? Where are you going to spend eternity? What do you think about Jesus Christ? I mean, these are the important questions in life. And I got to tell you what happened with the young man. We continued a conversation there for a, a little while. Eventually, he had to go. I gave him some literature, but basically, he kind of walked away. But hopefully, maybe my challenge will come back to him at some, some point in the future. But you know, those questions are the same questions that a young man was confronted with when Jesus was headed for Jerusalem. What must they do to inherit eternal life? How does one then get to be saved? I mean, those were the most important questions. That man walked away as well. But how did Jesus handle that question? Turn, if you will, in your Bibles to, to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, where we have an encounter with a young man. Now, Jesus is moving from Galilee down towards Jerusalem. The year is AD 33. The disciples had been with Jesus for probably about three years. And Jesus was headed to Jerusalem for the triumphal entry. A young man, what we call a rich young ruler, comes up to Jesus. Interesting, we get the rich from Mark, young from Matthew, and ruler from Luke. And so we put those together and we have the rich young ruler. But he was young, influential, and very wealthy. Just the kind of guy that you would want your daughter to marry, right? And this young man comes up and he begins to engage Jesus. And most likely, since he was rich and he was young, he probably inherited his wealth. And now he wants to find out how to inherit eternal life. And in this section, you have an interaction that Jesus has with this young man. Then you have some instructions that he gives to his disciples. You'll see that. There'll be a break. And then I want to draw some implications for us. So there's the interaction, some instruction, and then some implications that we have for us. Let's look at the interaction that Jesus has with the rich young ruler. I'm going to read the passage and then we're going to come back and we're going to break it down a little bit. Verse 17, Mark chapter 10, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. 
Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. The young man approaches Jesus in a very unusual way. He falls upon his knees before Jesus, very respectful. And he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I I mean, what must I do to inherit it? I've inherited this wealth. And maybe because of my ethnic relationship with the Jewish nation, maybe I am able to inherit eternal life as well. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus comes back. He really had two misconceptions here, by the way. One, the misconception was is that the kingdom was contingent upon inheriting or doing something. And the second misconception that he had was that whatever that was, he was going to be able to fulfill it. He was going to be able to do it. So not only do I think that I'm going to be able to inherit eternal life by doing something, but secondly, I'm going to be able to pull it off. I'm going to be able to do that. By the way, this isn't the only time that Jesus had that question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You remember there was also a scribe that came up and asked Jesus that same question. And after that, Jesus went into the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so this, is, this has been kind of a common question for Jesus. Jesus you know, knew what he was doing with this. And he was able to also understand what, what was going on with this man's heart. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. See, good was not attributed typically to a rabbi. Good was only attributed to God. And Jesus points this word good out not to disparage or to try to to say something that he wasn't God, but he was really saying, hey, look, this isn't a denial of my deity. It's really proof of my deity. If you really believe that I am good and that I am God, then you need to listen to what I have to say. He says, what must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's interesting, Jesus answering this really says, hey, look, if you want to do something, let me give you five things to do. You want to do something? Let me give you five things to do. And so he he says, you know, you know the commandments, verse 19, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, probably because it was appropriate to the wealthy, do not defraud. And we know that he's wealthy in verse 22, that he's a wealthy man. So Jesus, do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Hey, what do I need to do? Well, if you need to do something, if you want to do something, do this. Kind of an interesting play, isn't it? 
You know, if we were to think about going up and asking Jesus and saying to Jesus, Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? The answer that we would say, he would most likely say is believe. Believe. Trust. Believe. But instead, he's able to see past what this man's frame here. He's able to go past that, and he's really able to look at the heart. He says, well, if you want to do something, let me give you something to do. Do this. Do five. Do these, do these five things. But you know, that's what the law is for. The law really is a tutor. The law is something to reveal our inadequacy of being able to pull it off. The law reveals really where our heart truly lies. It reveals to us our unrighteousness in that only God is righteous, we are not, that we are not going to be able to pull it off in the flesh. We are not going to be able to do enough And the law reveals that, the inadequacy of ourselves. And so Jesus, instead of just going in for that man's heart, says, if you want to do something, do this. Because this is the law. And the law is a tutor. It it reveals how unrighteous you really are. And before this man can really recognize the righteousness of God, He must come to grips with his own unrighteousness that he's not going to be able to do anything. But it's interesting in verse 20, teacher, he declares, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. He regarded obedience as that simple conformity to the outward letter of the law without really looking at the hard issues. Yeah, I'm going through the motions. I'm doing this. I've kept it since I was a boy. Now notice very, very carefully here. Notice very carefully. When he says, all these things I've kept as a boy, that the young man, even though he was convinced that he had kept all of these laws since he was a boy, still did not have any assurance that he was going to go to heaven. You see, when you try to live against some sort of outward conformity to a law or standard that you've set up for yourself, you never know whether or not you've completed every little letter of the law. Maybe there's something else that I'm missing. Maybe there's just one more thing. You never have that assurance that you've inherited eternal life. And so he goes to Jesus, obviously thinking that Jesus is in, he is not even though he's convinced that he has been a righteous guy from his childhood, I've kept all of those, those things. But maybe there's just one more little innuendo that I've missed. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, we set those things up all the time. What must I do Do I need to live a good life? Do I need to be a good person? Do I need to live up to this standard that obviously is here before me? That if I'm a good person, then obviously God's going to grade on a curve and 
and he's going to let me in because of who I am. But you never really have the ability to know for sure. I think I've been a good enough person. Is God great on a curve? Maybe if I have 51 good things and 49 bad things, God's going to let me in? No. No. And that's what the law was doing. It's a tutor. It was a standard. It was a rule of measure. It was going to show you your, just your inability to be able to pull it off. And Jesus recognizes this young man, and he, the young man says, well, I've done that all my life, but I have no assurance. Obviously, you do. I don't. What's the one thing that I'm missing? What do I need to do? Jesus then tells the young man in verse 21, he says he looks at him and he loves him. I think, I, I, I like that. He loves him. I think he really was able to see that this, this young man was really sincere. He was sincerely trying. He really did want to have eternal life. He really did want to inherit eternal life. He was sincere, but he fell short. Jesus looks at him and he sees that sincerity and he loves him. We have a lot of sincere people going around, truly wanting, truly desiring, truly wanting to do the good thing, truly wanting to do the right thing, going to church, being a good person, doing the things that I need to be doing to maybe earn my way to heaven, to maybe earn favor in God's eyes, but never quite sure whether or not we're going to make it. Jesus looked at him and he loves him, but then notice what he says. He says, one thing you lack But then he gives him three more things to do. One thing you lack, but here's three more things that I want you to do. The one thing that the man lacked was, was Jesus. Faith and trust in God and him alone. That's what he lacked. But if you want to do something, let me give you three more things for you to do. What I want you to do is first, sell all of your assets. Second, give them to the poor and then follow me. By the way, if you see this as a prescription for you to be able to gain eternal life, you're falling into the trap of the rich young ruler. Because Jesus was taking this rich young ruler down a path that wasn't going to reveal what he could do, but what he couldn't do. That he was going to take him down to a path where he realized, I can't do anything. And the man's reluctance at this point to be able to, to follow those three revealed his heart. And that's where Jesus was going. He was going to go down and reveal your heart. Where does your heart really lie? Does your heart lie in the material things or does your heart, lie, and faith, and trust, and dependence upon me. And Jesus put his finger on what was keeping this man from having eternal life. And what was keeping this man from having eternal life was his trust on the wealth, his trust on the material, his trust on the comfortable lifestyle that he had. 
If you want to do something, then let me give you three things. Sell all of your wealth, give it to the poor, and follow me. What was he doing? Just revealing the man's heart. What is he trusting in? What is he trusting in? Now, let's not be too tough on the young man. The young man was probably acting in the typical Jewish mindset that prosperity and wealth really demonstrated God's blessing upon him for being obedient. And so he thought that his wealth, even though he probably inherited it, his wealth was really a blessing for him being so obedient. But Jesus now has taken it to a place. What? You want me to sell my wealth? Sell my assets? Give it to the poor? And follow you? Yeah. Because you have a self-reliant faith. You have a self-reliant faith. You think you can do it on your own. You think you can pull it off by doing something else. So if you want to do something else, do this. I can't do that. This man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. Chose to rely upon himself rather than upon Jesus. He chose to rely upon his gold rather than rely upon God. He chose to rely upon the comforts of today than put his faith and trust in tomorrow. He had a self-reliant faith. But now Jesus turns to the disciples. But by the way, you know, you can trust in other things as well. It doesn't have to be your wealth. You can trust in other things. Things that you think are going to bring you merit in order to be acceptable to God. Some years ago, I was in, in Israel and I was talking to a Jewish friend of mine He's Jewish, wonderful guy. We got into a conversation about Jesus. And finally, he came around to a place where he said, and he looked at me, and he was very sincere, and I appreciated his honesty. He says, you know, what you are saying about Jesus is probably true. But for me to embrace Jesus would be treason. And what he meant by that was for me to embrace Jesus, I would have to give up my cultural identity as Jew. I would have to abandon that and I would have to abandon everything that was there in my Jewishness in his mind. He wouldn't have to, but he would think so. And I would embrace Jesus. I can't do that. In other words, he was resting in his cultural identity rather than resting in Jesus. It doesn't have to be wealth. It can be a variety of different things. I, I feel more comfortable over here than I do with abandoning that to follow Jesus. That's called a self-reliant faith. I can do it on my own. I can pull it off on my own. Well, Jesus has that interaction with a rich young ruler 
which results in him walking away. But now he has some instructions for his disciples. Notice what it says, verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, so now the conversation is turned. He's now pointing his way towards his disciples. He says, how hard it is for a rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed as his words, amazed. They were caught back. And Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed, more amazed at that statement. And they said to each other, who then can be saved? What? Who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But not with God. All things are possible with God. Jesus points out that instead of providing some evidence of righteousness for this young man, that the wealth, that the wealth had actually become a barrier for, for them to be able to enter into the kingdom of God. Instead of producing righteousness, it had really become a barrier. And the barrier had become very, very great. The disciples were amazed. They said, what do you mean by that? We thought everybody that righteousness was, was demonstrated by your wealth. Jesus says, no. No. And then he, then he says, how hard it is for the rich. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. The camel was the largest beast that was known in Palestine. The eye of the needle was the littlest opening that could be used on a daily basis. Over the years, many interpreters have tried to either reduce the size of the camel or enlarge the size of the, of the, of the needle. Unfortunately, it doesn't work. A lot of those interpretations like, well, it's a small gate, that didn't come up until the crusader time. What he's talking about, he's talking about a camel He's talking about a needle. It's hard. Why? Well, when you have a self-reliant faith, you think you can do it. I can make it. I can do it. Look. Look at me. And now we all start focusing our attention on me and I and what I'm able to do and who I am and what I'm going to be able to pull off says it's impossible for somebody that's trusting in their riches to be able to go into, to get into, the, get into heaven. Why? Because it's a self-reliant faith. Well, the disciples then in verse 26, they were even amazed. Who then can be saved? I mean, we're still thinking the wealth indicates righteousness, but you're just saying No. Is there any hope for anybody at this point? Well, Jesus then says, verse 27, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. What's impossible for us is possible with God. That's the whole point. 
Well, we've seen the interaction. We've seen the instruction. What's the implication for us? Well, did you notice here that there are really two questions that were posed? Two questions that were posed. First question's in verse 17. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer is that Jesus gives is nothing. You can't do it on your own. You can't do it. You want to try to live up against the law? You aren't going to be able to make it. You can't do enough. You all, all of us fall short. We all fall short of the righteousness of God. God is perfect. We are not. We are not going to be perfect. We fall short. Secondly, notice, notice what he, the second question. It's in verse 26. Verse 26 is, who then can be saved? The answer is those who trust in Jesus. Those who trust in Jesus. Those who believe, receive, and place their faith in him and him alone. What's impossible for us is possible with God. Faith and trust. Jesus isn't just one of many ways to be able to get to heaven. Jesus is the only way to be able to get to heaven. And he takes this man down the, down the path where the man comes to a place where he realizes, I'm not going to be able to pull it off in the flesh. And really, I have broken the first commandment, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart. The man wasn't because he loved riches more than God. You see, the gospel hasn't changed. The gospel's the same. All of us fall short. All of us have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. There's no way that we're going to be able to work our way to heaven. There's no way we're going to be able to do it. And because of that, we've all earned eternal separation from God because God is perfect and we are not. But Jesus Christ came, he died for our sins and arose from the dead to prove that that sacrifice that he made on my behalf was an acceptable sacrifice to a holy God. And all he's asking for us is to believe, to place our faith and trust in him and him alone as the only way to be able to get to heaven. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. To transfer our trust from whatever we are trusting in, our good works, being a good person, going to church, tithing, whatever. Try, whatever we think that we're doing to try to work our way to heaven, set that aside. Transfer our trust from that to what Christ has already done on the cross. We can't do it. It's already been done. Jesus says, believe, have faith. Place your faith and trust in me and me alone. And we see that dependent trust upon him. But that's the point of the whole passage of being here. You see, right before it, he's talking to children about childlike faith. 
Right after this passage, they go into Jericho and you see Bartimaeus. And he's talking about childlike faith. In between, we have this example of self-reliant faith. And that self-reliant faith is in stark contrast to what's going on before it and after it, where Jesus is talking about childlike faith and dependence and trust upon him and him alone as the only way to be able to get to heaven. You say, well, that's good, Doug. What about me? You know, I've come to a place where I've placed my faith and trust in Jesus. What about me? What implications does this have for me? You know, in its purest form of the passage, the passage is talking about salvation. But you know, it has great implications for the believer as well. Let me ask you a question. How's life going for you? You know, on a scale of one to 10, how fulfilled are you in life? You say, well, eight, nine, whatever. Well, what makes it that? Do you think that that equation might, or that number might change one way or the other if Jesus were number one in your life? You see, Jesus came and he said, I came that you might have life and that you might have life abundantly, that you might have a a 10. Why isn't it a 10? It's because maybe you've put some other things in front of Jesus. Maybe it's your own comfort. Maybe it's your wealth. Maybe it's your time. I just don't have enough time. You know what that all boils down to is me. I want me to be first rather than Jesus to be first. Do you think that number would change on the scale if Jesus were number one in your life? And see, that's what Jesus is saying here. I want childlike dependence on me day by day, moment by moment, walking with me all the time. And if you walk with me in obedience and in faith and trust, life is abundant. Life is abundant. Stop relying upon self. Start trusting in God. Life is found in Jesus. Self-reliant faith leads to separation from God childlike faith and dependence upon him leads to life. The Father's desire for you is a life of childlike dependence and faith upon him and him alone. It's not what you can do for him. It's what he has already done for you. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, Thank you for the reality of this this passage in making clear the distinction between a self-reliant faith and a childlike faith. Father, we realize that tendency within us every day to try to rely upon ourselves rather than trusting and depending upon you and you alone. 
I pray, Lord, that those that are here that may not know you personally, maybe those that are just going through the motions of Christianity or those that are relying upon just being a good person in order to get to heaven, I pray, Lord, that they might turn to you for salvation and that they might make a decision to trust in you and you alone as the only way to be able to get to heaven. That they would right now just be able to say to you and express that decision by saying, you know, Lord, I I know that I'm a sinner. There's no way I'm going to be able to earn this. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and arose from the dead. And I trust in him alone is the only way to be able to get right with you. Thank you for that forgiveness of sins and the eternal life that I now have. And Father, may we, all of us, live a life on your terms, not try to live a life on our terms. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.